We've been making our way for several weeks now through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and we turn again to it this evening and specifically to the third chapter. So Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read together verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, this is uh, a great passage, maybe one of the greatest, maybe one of the most important in some senses that Paul ever wrote. So it deserves great attention. It deserves um, clear minds. And frankly, God, I just admit that I need your help tonight if we are going at all to approximate to what this passage deserves from us. And so help me, I pray. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This letter, Philippians, is known often as Paul's joyful letter because over and over again that theme of joy and rejoicing comes to the four. Sixteen times, in fact, in these four chapters, Paul uses either the noun joy or the verb rejoice. Sixteen times in four chapters. So even though Paul writes this letter from prison, remember, his pen is overflowing with thanksgiving for his Philippian friends, with optimism about the progress of the gospel in spite of his situation, with hope concerning his own future, and with joy in it all. It's the joyful letter. And at three different points in this letter, Paul enjoins the Philippians to rejoice with him. Three times he commands them to do that. One of them, of course, being right here at the beginning of chapter 
3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command, isn't it? And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is as much a command for us as it was for the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Yes, your apostle is in prison, chapter 1, but the gospel is advancing anyway and even making greater progress because Paul is locked up. So rejoice in the Lord. Yes, being a Christian is difficult sometimes, and you're going to suffer for Christ's sake, chapter 1, verse 29. But rejoice in the Lord, because if you live, you will shine all the more brightly for Jesus, and if you die, then that is gain. Yes, your messenger Epaphroditus almost died bringing your gift to me, but rejoice in the Lord that he was willing to do so. That the work of Christ meant that much to him and rejoice that he didn't die, but has now returned to your fellowship. Rejoice that you have a heavenly father who is willing to send his only begotten son to earth to endure death, even death on a cross, chapter 2. And a heavenly father who has promised to perfect his good work in us all the way until Jesus comes again. Rejoice in the Lord. That's one of the grand themes of this letter. It is the joyful letter. And when we read the letter, we're given many reasons why we should rejoice. But then, after this command to rejoice in verse 1, and after a brief rationale at the end of the verse for why it's okay for pastors to repeat themselves oftentimes, Paul shifts gears in verse 2, and quite abruptly he shifts gears, it would seem. Rejoice in the Lord, verse 1, but then also Beware of the dogs, verse 2. Rejoice in the Lord and beware of the dogs. Now, you might know someone who has both of those sayings printed on poster board and hung up somewhere in their home place. But they're probably not side by side like we find them here, right? The words rejoice in the Lord seem to belong, don't they, in a nice little frame set beneath clean glass, printed on some sort of floral or, or uh, pastoral background in beautiful font and hung up over the kitchen sink or maybe in the foyer as you enter the home. But beware of the dogs goes on black matte finish, doesn't it? And bright orange, all caps, bold print. And it's probably not anywhere near the cursive printed rejoice in the Lord sign that's hanging in the house. And that's how we often like our life compartmentalized, isn't it? There are the quaint and the happy parts that make us rejoice, like Epaphroditus returning home safe and sound at the end of chapter 2. And then over here, we have the dangerous parts, the difficult parts, the parts that threaten our joy. And we like to keep those two things separated as much as we can. And while I'm not suggesting that you begin keeping a Rottweiler in your kitchen, it is worth noticing that in the Christian life, rejoice and beware sit side by side. In the Christian life, you must sing and rejoice and praise the Lord and at one and the same time, always keep a weather eye out for danger. Because in the Christian life, you can't always keep those things that threaten your joy chained up in the backyard, can you? In the Christian life, the dangers to our faith, the threats to our joy do, whether we like it or not, sometimes come charging right into our living rooms, so to speak. 
And that was what was apparently happening in Philippi. There was a threat to the Philippians' faith. A group of men whom Paul calls the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. In short, they were false teachers. They were heretics whose teaching would do great damage if it gained a foothold in Philippi. And we'll come back in a few moments and think about what exactly they were teaching. But for now, suffice it to say that what they were propounding was dangerous. Beware, Paul says. They're posing a serious threat to the Philippians' faith, to their joy, even a deadly threat, potentially. And evidently, Paul is concerned that their teaching might actually make some inroads in the church if the Philippians aren't vigilant. That's the warning to beware. See, it would be one thing if these teachers were somehow confined to their own synagogues or their own meeting houses and their own people like dogs chained up in a backyard. But evidently, these dogs are loose in the city, or at least Paul is concerned that they might be. They may be going door to door like certain false teachers do in our own day, deceiving people. They may be infiltrating some of the home Bible study groups. They may be making headway through a very charismatic public speaker in the town or through a cleverly written book or pamphlet. All the same ways that false teachers ensnare people today. Praise God they didn't have multimedia back then. But however these dogs are purveying their false doctrine, Paul is concerned that they might actually capture the imagination of some in the Philippian church and destroy them. And so he says, beware. And he has to put his beware of the dog's placard right next to the Rejoice in the Lord banner. By means of this letter, probably read publicly at a Sunday gathering, Paul stakes up his beware of the dog sign right in the middle of the worship service, right next to all the rejoicing and the praise. And he does that not to be a killjoy, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but because he is serious about getting the gospel right. He is solemn about truth. He is blood earnest about right doctrine. So much so that in the middle of his joyful letter, he can say, beware of the dogs. And I just stop here to say the same thing to you. Beware of those who would lead you astray. It's even easier for us to access them today probably than it was then. Beware of those who add to the gospel. Beware of those who take away from it. Beware of those who would put a mediator between Jesus and his people. Beware of those whose theology seems to focus around the blessings of this present age. Beware false teachers in our own day. But who are the false teachers, the evil workers that Paul's talking about here in Philippi? Well, he gives us some hints as to the nature of their heresy, both in the way that he describes the evil workers themselves in verse 2, and then in the way in which he contrasts them with himself and with true Christianity in verse 3. In terms of Paul's description of the false teachers themselves, the key phrase that helps us understand them is that phrase, the false circumcision. Beware of the false circumcision. And if you've read through some of Paul's other letters, that word circumcision may ring a bell to you. Because Philippi wasn't the only church in the New Testament to deal with 
people who call themselves the circumcision, we sometimes, in retrospect, call them the Judaizers. They were in Acts 15, you may remember, telling people you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. They seem to especially have been a problem in the church in Galatia. And Paul was concerned that they might make headway in Philippi as well. And reading what Paul writes about them here and elsewhere, we discover that their heresy was basically this. They taught that in order to be saved, or perhaps in order to be really spiritual or to be complete in Christ, you had to become culturally Jewish and obey certain things related to Mosaic law. And particularly, you had to submit yourself to the rite of circumcision. Not for hygiene purposes, as people do today, but because circumcision, in their mind, connected you with the Jewish people and made you truly right with God. So Jesus is great, but in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. You must be like us. And I hope you see the problem with that. It may seem like a small thing on one level. What does it matter if someone has minor surgery or not? Well, in one sense, that's true. But the minor surgery matters a great deal if you're doing it because you think that it makes you right with God to do so. Because to do that is tantamount to saying Jesus' finished work isn't enough. I have to add something to it. Jesus' sinless life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his intercession for me at God's right hand, those things are all wonderful. Praise God for them, but they're not enough to secure my standing with God. I have to add something to it. And that's what these evil workers were saying. That's why Paul calls them the false circumcision, because they believe what is directly opposite to the true circumcision. The true circumcision, Paul urges elsewhere, is to be circumcised in your heart, to have the sinful flesh cut away from your heart, so to speak, to be a new creature. Or as he puts it here in Philippians 3.2, to worship in the spirit of God, and thus not merely in external forms. Well, these evil workers didn't get that. They were so attached to the external forms which were never meant, incidentally, to save, even in the Old Testament, so attached to those forms that they sidelined Jesus. And they ran around town telling people to cut themselves in order to be saved. And their spiritual ancestors are still around today, aren't they? The external forms may be different. Circumcision is not that big a deal anymore. But there are still people today who are so concerned to convince people that they must do this to be saved or that to be truly Christian or the other thing to be really spiritual, that Jesus is almost an afterthought, even sometimes among people who claim to believe in him. Of course, they are officially present in the Roman Catholic Church and among Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Their very official doctrines teach this kind of thing. They're also a present danger in some fundamentalist circles that have lots of boxes you must tick in order to really be a Christian. But I just want to remind you that there's actually a legalist, a Judaizer, a a circumcision kind of person tucked away somewhere in the heart of every one of us. In our flesh, we'd all like to get a little bit of credit for our spirituality, wouldn't we? In our flesh, we'd all like to think that we did something 
to make God love us. And in our flesh, we'd like it to simply be as easy as doing some external thing and say, there, I did it. I know I'm a Christian because I did that thing. And often, when this is starting to come out of our hearts, it shows itself in the way we look down upon other people who don't do certain things exactly as we do or as our church does them. And so, while we would never say that Jesus plus is the formula for true Christianity, we can often slip into this same error without realizing that we're doing it. Just think about that for a moment. Are there ways in which I am adding to the finished work of Christ by expecting others, if they want to really be Christians, to be like me? If you're thinking like that, then you are tending towards the errors of the false circumcision, focusing on the outward forms, on personal achievements, rather than on Christ. And Paul says this is in stark contrast to true Christianity because he says we are the true circumcision, verse 3. Beware of the dogs, verse 2. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So now he's going to tell us what real Christianity is. Into that, we're going to learn even more about why these false circumcision people were wrong. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I think it was last Good Friday, Kevin Landis, my friend, was speaking about this verse. And he said, here is the definition of a Christian in verse 3. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what a Christian is. We are the true circumcision. We've been circumcised not merely in our bodies, but in our hearts, Romans 2. And this circumcision, Colossians 2, has been performed without hands, but by the Holy Spirit. And so we worship not based on what we can do with our hands, but in the Spirit of God, verse 3. We don't just settle for outward forms. We actually know God. And we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in his work, not our own. We rest in his achievements, not our own. We're saved by his blood, not the blood of our own circumcision. So he is our everything. And because he is, because we're so confident in the finished work of Christ, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence, as the hymn writer Horatius Bonar said it, in what my hands have done. We sang that on Sunday, didn't we? Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. Your power alone, O Son of God, can all my sin erase. No other work but yours, no other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. That's the heartbeat of a Christian, isn't it? She worships in the Spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. And lest anyone begin to think that, well, Paul, I understand what he means, but he doesn't understand just how good I've actually been. I mean, he doesn't know how scrupulously I've always served the Lord. 
just in case someone might begin to think that they actually might just be the exception to Paul's rule here, Paul opens up his briefcase and pulls out of the file his own resume and slaps it down on the table and says, in essence, see if you can top this, verses 4 through 7. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. In other words, Paul says, if you want to count Jewishness, as the marker of spirituality. I've got that covered. I was circumcised exactly as the Old Testament prescribes. I am an ethnic Jew. I am from one of the two tribes that never defected from the family of David. And if obedience to the law is your measure of rightness with God, I belong to the strictest religious order that there is. I kept the law so meticulously that if you looked at my record and compared it with the Old Testament, you wouldn't be able to find a blemish. And so I was so zealous, in fact, that I even tracked down and arrested those whom I once saw as the false teachers on the other side of the fence. So if anyone really thinks that he can stand before God based on his Jewishness or his personal obedience or his spiritual fastidiousness, I far more, Paul says. In other words, if there's anyone who can gainsay what Paul just said in verse 3 about what Christianity really is, if there's anyone who can demonstrate that salvation really is capable or possible by our own efforts, that we really can be right with God based on external obedience, if there's anyone who could demonstrate that faith in Jesus is not enough and you've got to do X, Y, and Z to be right with God, it would have been Paul, right? If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And yet listen to what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever things were gained to me, all the things he's just listed, all of his spiritual pedigree, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's been on both sides of the fence, hasn't he? He's known what it was like to place all confidence in his flesh, in what he had done, in where he was born. And he's also known what it is to place no confidence in the flesh, but rather to glory in someone else to glory in Christ Jesus, to put full confidence in what he has done, to rest and rejoice in his work alone. And Paul is saying here, I would choose the latter every time. I would gladly give up everything on my spiritual resume. In fact, he says, I have given it up. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he has given us in verses 4 through 7 a portrait of what it looks like. Put no confidence in the flesh. That's part of what delineates us as Christians, isn't it? We put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul puts himself as an example of what it looks like to do that. The glad letting go of all the spiritual feathers in our caps. Because we found something far better, far more substantial, far 
more reliable, far more glorious in which to put our confidence. And that far more glorious thing is not actually a thing. It's a person, isn't it? We put no confidence in the flesh because we have come to glory in Christ, verse 3. Paul counts all of his pedigree as loss for the sake of Christ. And Christ, I remind you, is a person. Now, why do I take the time to state the obvious? Namely, that Christ is a person. You all know that, right? Why do I take the time to say that Paul gloried in a person? Well, because Paul is going to talk powerfully in just a moment about a thing as well, particularly in verse 9. Paul is going to wax lyrical, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. He's going to speak very powerfully and beautifully about righteousness in just a moment, a different kind of righteousness than that which characterized his former days, a different kind of righteousness than that which characterizes the false teachers in Philippi. Not the kind of righteousness that he has earned himself, but the kind which comes on the basis of faith, verse 9. That I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What he's describing in verse 9, of course, is what he elsewhere calls justification. The process of being declared right, righteous, just, in God's sight, not by virtue of one's works, but through simple faith in Jesus. That is justification. And Paul paints that definition so beautifully onto the canvas in verse 9 that it is among the most striking passages in the Bible. And it is, as I say, almost lyrical, it seems. And so we might get caught up this evening talking about the wonderful truth of justification, how marvelous it is to have a righteousness not our own. And that's a marvelous subject, and it's a true thing. But we might get so caught up talking about the thing, the truth, that we forget the main emphasis of Paul's whole argument in this passage. Paul has ceased putting confidence in the flesh. He has counted his spiritual pedigree to be lost so that he might glory, not first of all in justification, Not first of all in a declared righteousness, marvelous and essential though that is. Paul has set his pedigree aside. Paul has ceased putting confidence in his flesh so that he and we might glory in a person in whom these gifts come to us. That's what he says over and over again here. He has traded his spiritual resume not simply for a better set of doctrines, But more than that, for a savior, for a person, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Christ. And then listen to what he says, especially in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, I don't think I ever noticed this or paid as much attention to as I should have before. Paul, yes, wants us here to have a new and better righteousness. This is one of the great passages in the New Testament about that righteousness, about what it means to be justified. But Paul also says in verse 8 that he wants to know Christ. He wants to gain Christ. He wants to be found in him, verse 9. And that's where his justification lies, in him. 
And so Paul glories not just in the doctrine of justification, but in him who makes it so. Verse 3, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. And it's just a good question for us to stop and ask about our own faith and our own desires and our own emphases. Do we simply want to be counted righteous, forgiven, declared right in God's sight so that we don't have judgment hanging over our heads? Or do we really want Christ himself? Do we revel in talking about certain doctrines for doctrine's sake? Or do we love certain doctrines because they magnify and bring us to Christ? We prayed earlier for Justin Huffman and their hopeful adoption coming up. Last summer, our families went on vacation together in Indiana, and Justin and I were sitting in the middle of this creek in plastic chairs talking about theology, of all things. And he was telling me how when he was a younger preacher, he preached a series of sermons and sent them to an older pastor to see what he thought and thinking that... But I don't in this case justification. We can have our doctrine right and yet not link it as the Bible does to Jesus. And it changed Justin's outlook and I'm sure his preaching as well. And we all need that kind of reminder sometimes, don't we? We can be so interested in certain doctrines, maybe especially the ones that set us apart from the false circumcision. We can be so interested in making sure that we talk about grace instead of works, that we properly define justification, that we forget that all these things come to us only when we have come into union with a person, the man Christ Jesus. And it's that person in whom we should glory. Keep that in mind as we look at Paul's portrait of justification. It is an important doctrine. We want to look at it, but remember that it is in Christ. Verse 9, Paul says that he wants to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, to the Pharisees, among whose number Paul had been, and to the false circumcision against which Paul is warning in this chapter, that sentence probably would have been unintelligible. A righteousness that is not my own? A righteousness that's not derived from the law? How else am I going to be righteous, Paul, if I am not the one doing it? How else am I going to be righteous if it's not through the law that God has given us? It would have been unintelligible to them. And yet they were so off the mark. They thought that our standing with God hinged in some part on our works. And that was never true. Even before the coming of Christ, that was never true. It's certainly clear now that Christ has come and laid down his life. But here there were people who still thought that way. And in Philippi, Paul is concerned lest such doctrine lead people astray by making it out as though Jesus were not enough, as though his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection and his intercession were not enough. That's what happens when people begin to embrace works righteousness. They're led away from Christ. And it doesn't matter if the work is circumcision in Paul's day or penance 
in ours, or confession, or baptism, or teetotaling, or listening to only a certain kind of music, or helping old ladies across the street. When a person begins to teach or to think that you must do X in order to be right with God, if that X is anything other than repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that person is not only wrong, but they are casting aspersions on Jesus. They're saying, you haven't evidently done enough. They might not say that in so many words, but that's what the doctrine amounts to. And not only does this doctrine finished work of Christ, but it also sends people to hell, doesn't it? Because it leads people away from Jesus. Well, Jesus has done what he did, but now let's focus on what we've got to do. That's all in the past, but what do I have to do now? And it becomes an obsession with religious ritual, which even when the religious ritual is not wrong in and of itself, cannot save. But Paul, having found all that he ever needed in Christ, now repudiates those who teach works righteousness. He calls them dogs and evil workers. And he says in verse 9 that he has found in Jesus a righteousness that is not his own. A righteousness that he did not work for, in other words. A righteousness that he did not own himself. A righteousness he did not earn by being perfectly obedient to the law. But rather, a righteousness that was given to him by God. Not on the basis of his works, but simply on account of his trusting Jesus. That which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, we have here in verse 9 a good definition of faith, don't we? Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So faith is when you cease trying to be right and just yourself by all of your own religious and moral efforts. That's the first part of the verse. And then you simply trust in what Christ has done by his sinless life, by his death on the cross, that it's enough for you to be saved. That's faith. And then when you put your faith in Christ like that, God justifies you. That is, he acquits you of your crimes and positively declares you right with himself. Not because you have been right in your actual behavior, but simply because you belong to Jesus. It's a declarative term. It's a courtroom term, justification is. We are legally cleared before the bar of God's justice because someone else has endured our sentence for us. And in fact, we are declared, we are treated as though we have actually done positively right by the Lord all of our days. And that right standing with God is not as a result of works, Ephesians 2. It is not derived from the law, verse 9 here. It is not a righteousness of your own, Paul says. It comes as a free gift simply because we trust Jesus and therefore are found in him, verse 9. In him, Paul says, in Jesus. There it is again. Justification is a courtroom term. It's an important term. It's a term we must understand. But that acquittal in God's courtroom, that decree of righteousness, is found not in a good case presented on our side, not in a pile of documents that might work in our favor. That acquittal, that decree that you are righteous, comes when you are found in him, in a person who laid down his life for you. 
and who stands there at God's bench and serves as your advocate. Our righteousness is in him, in his blood, in his nail-pierced hands, in his sinless record, in his advocacy for us on high. And so when Paul came to faith, he got a righteousness that was not his own, to be sure. But more than that, he got the righteous one. He got Jesus. He was found in him. And then in verses 10 and 11, Paul goes on to say that he not only received the righteousness that comes with being found in Jesus, but he also expects that he will receive other gifts and has received other gifts, surely, that are also part and part of being in him, in Christ. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, verse 10, and because Paul is in Jesus, Paul has this great hope that Christ's resurrection power will make a difference in his own life, too. And he probably has in mind that the power of his resurrection would show itself not only in Paul's final resurrection, but also in the ability to live a new life here and now. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. If I'm in Christ, I've seen that there's power there. He has risen from the dead. And I expect that that power will come and work in me so that I will rise from the dead and that I'll rise even now and live a new life. And because Jesus has suffered and because Paul is in Jesus, Paul expects that he will know what it is to suffer with Christ as well. And just, again, notice that Paul expects to find these things once again in Christ. Paul doesn't life itself to know this. Paul think of resurrection both in this life and in a new body later, he can't think of those things without remembering that it's powered by Jesus' resurrection. And he can't think of his own suffering simply as his own sufferings either. He sees them, he seems to see them, I think, in verse 10, as an opportunity to fellowship with Jesus. Almost like his sufferings will help him know Jesus even better. Doesn't it sound like that to you, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death? All the blessings that Paul has come to him in Jesus. And so I repeat to you that Paul's orientation in leaving his own Phariseeism and in warning against the Judaizers in Philippi, Paul's orientation was not simply to trade one set of bad doctrines for another set of good doctrines. He did that, but the real trade was to trade reliance upon himself for reliance upon Jesus. I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not saying that Paul's wishy-washy on doctrine. He wasn't. Neither am I. But the point is that all the doctrines are true because of a person. And if we get them wrong, we don't just get them wrong. We diminish the glory of that person and we point people away from that person. So you can see on the screen, I originally titled this message, Not Having a Righteousness of My Own. But as Paul's greater emphasis on the person of Christ became more clear to me, I had to change the title on the paper in front of me to The Surpassing Value of Knowing Christ Jesus. That's what this passage is all about. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything else comes back to that. Verse 1, we rejoice in the Lord. Verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus. We desire to know him and to gain him, verse 8, and to be found in him, verse 9. Our righteousness comes from God through faith in him. 
Our sufferings are a fellowship with him, verse 10. And we live the Christian life, and we will someday live again in the power of his resurrection. And if we can only gain him, what will it matter if we ball up our religious rays and them in the fire? Paul, in fact, says that all the religious plaques and pats on the back that we could ever collect are like rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus, verse 8. Rubbish. The actual word is dung or feces. And yet so many people in the world are piling it up, aren't they? Expecting that they will one day stand before God and point to their pile and say, look how good I did, God. And how embarrassing and how tragic when finally standing in the light of Christ for the very first time, they look back and see that what they're pointing at, what they're boasting in, what they're relying upon is a great heap of raw sewage. In fact, let me just ask you for a moment if there's anything like that that you're piling up, anything you might be taking pride in in your life right now. What is it that you perhaps fancy that you can't wait For God to see, not as a child showing a crayon drawing to your daddy, but as a grown-up who actually thinks that this will prove how righteous you really are to the Lord. If there's something like that, chances are you're not simply waiting to show your achievement to God. Chances are you're probably also trying to find ways to help others see it already. Maybe you drop hints about your generosity or your faithfulness or your long-suffering or your sacrifice or your doctrinal superiority over other Christians. Maybe I talk about how I would never behave like so-and-so. But when we do that, little do we remember that those things that we start to bank on, those things that we start to take pride in and rely upon, even if they are good things in and of themselves, they putrefy and become like feces when we put confidence in them and try to wear them as our crowns. But oh, tonight, you can leave all that self-confidence aside. You can throw it away where it belongs. You can leave the pile of dung and trade it in, not only for a better pile, not only for a correct doctrinal understanding even, which is not a pile of anything except jewels, Bible doctrine is precious, but you can even trade all of that in, not only for correct doctrine, but for the Savior himself, about whom we sometimes sing more than all in him I find. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord.